Um, but uh, it is uh, a series of five questions that we've taken from the website soulpancake.com. We've not taken it from there because this is a great, spiritually wonderful Christian website, because it's not, or because it is the ultimate dreg of society and we want to impose ourselves. It's not that either. It's they raise interesting questions every week, and we want to constantly be talking about interesting questions that other people are talking about. So we've picked five questions that have elicited, solicited a lot of responses over the course of the last couple of months on this website. This is week two. We're dealing with a very specific question this week, and I'm really looking forward to what Bruce has to say about it, because this is the question. There was a playwright poet, Anton Artaud, uh, says no one has ever written, painted, sculpted, built, or invented except literally to get out of hell. Do you agree or disagree with this statement? That is the question of the day. Do you agree or disagree? Now, last week, we tried to get some answers to that question by literally doing a man on the street. We had someone go out to the streets of Charlotte and hold a microphone to people's faces, film it, and put it on screen. If you haven't seen that film, which was then further animated by Joel uh, Hopler and Joe Page, um, you need to go to the website and look for it because it's a really fantastic piece of original work. But each week we're trying to answer that question somehow before Bruce imposes the... Uh, imposes, that's a really... Hmm, yeah. Bruce teaches... Um, <laughs> I'm just going to leave now. Um, no, uh, before Bruce comes in and, and teaches on the, that as our launching off point of the day. So today, our way of doing that, this rhymes to me with a question about creativity or art or something like that. So we decided, let's ask some people that create. So you sort of know these people, either their work or who they are. So I want to invite two people to come to the stage with me. They will answer the question with me. I'll answer it too. That was the deal that I made with them. If they answer it, I'll answer it in public. Um, this right here. So I want to welcome Bracken Johnson to the stage. She is a multimedia or sorry, mixed media uh, artist, does a lot of painting. And this is a piece of her work right here, Bracken. And... Uh, Joel Hopler. Joel, uh, if you want to see what his work looks like, look at that wall right there. That's a work of his and uh, him and his wife. Um, also, he has contributed to our Sistine 7 series, um, and uh, he uh, helped with last week's film. He's done a ton of things. So this is Joel Hopler. So on the spot, the question, you've seen it on the screen. Do you agree or disagree? Bracken. Hello. Um... For me personally, I would have to say I disagree for myself. Um, I view my work as a progression. So any time that I start, I could be in any type of mood. I could be in an awful mood and my week could literally be my hell that week. Um, the next week I could pick up my paintbrush, work on the same painting and be having a fabulous week and be feeling great. Um, so my work has all types of depth to it when it comes to my moods and my feelings. So it's not necessarily to escape from something. It is more how to deal with what's going on, whether it be awful or great. Okay. Joel, same question. Um, well, I want to say yes, <laughs> but um, there's a few uh, technicalities that I disagree with, I guess. Um, any statement that starts off with something that says um, no one ever is just uh, generally a false statement but um and then uh, at the end to say to say to get out of hell of to literally get out of going to hell it's uh kind of an intense thing for me as well um but uh if it wasn't for that yes but, uh, <laughs> <laughs> um I, I think i think uh actually just uh i mean for for you know the phrase to literally get out of hell if the alternate of that was to to move towards God or to get into heaven or something like that, it may be more of an accurate thing for me personally, but 
Um, but yeah, I think that's. So yes yeah. and no. Yes and no. On the technicality only. Yeah. So objection from the, yeah, okay. <laughs> Um, so my answer to it uh, is si similar to yours uh, of yes and no. Um, I was, as I was uh, considering that I would have to answer this, I went back through my lyric book because um, uh, I think my freest type of expression is when I'm writing music that we use here. Um, and, uh, and realizing that most of the lyrics in my book from the last couple of years are not for me to literally get out of hell because first of all, I'm always annoyed by the use of the word literally. Um, uh, when it's not a literal expression. Um, so, uh, so literally, I looked at my book, and, uh, uh, and uh, what I found was that most of it was a quest of some kind, or I, I said at the first service that I, I think that generally um, humanity is not comfortable with or does not, uh, does not have a natural state, which is freedom. Um, it's something that needs to be found or explored or come into. And so that, that seems to me what I write about most of the time. So um, it might not be to literally get out of hell, but it, it definitely is a, a quest for um, restoration or getting out of somewhere that I am. Like so, Newark. Like Newark, yes. <laughs> what, do you, what do you mean, hey? I mean, I've never heard anybody defend Newark. <laughs> Go for it. <laughs> it's near New York. Newark and the oranges. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes. Okay, I need to recover now. So, uh, Bruce. Thank you for a moment there, Patty. Joel, can I ask you another question? You said, and I know you didn't mean it literally, that sometimes you are painting to get into heaven, so to speak. Tell me about what does that look like for you? I mean, what's that, what's that expressive moment when you're trying not to escape from something, but trying to get somewhere? Well, um, it's, I don't know, it's a, it's a progressive, well, it's not progressive, but it, it's, a, it's a movement, I don't know, like, it's an attack, it's a, uh, I think it's like a wrestling match, it's like a struggle, it's like a, I don't know, it's a, it's a moment where, um, you know, you're, you're being really true with yourself because, you know, you're leaving nothing behind you, you're just creating a wake, you know, um, I mean, I guess that sounds very kind of avant-garde, but it's, uh, I guess it is in the sense of attempting to, you know, um, figure out who I am and who I am in the face of the creator of the universe. Let me ask you another question, which is totally ambiguous and perhaps troubling. How often are you, when you get to the end of that process, are you pleased with where you've gotten to? And I know pleased is a word you could go a bazillion di different directions with, so nonetheless, there's the ambiguity. <laughs> uh, never. Um, I don't know. It's. I mean, I've. I've don't you hate phrases that start with something like "never"? Yeah, <laughs> never and never will. No, uh, it's kind of the point. No, um, I, I think that you know when I, I've made images that are aesthetically pleasing, and I've created compositions that fulfill what I'm looking for at that moment. Um, but to really, to be able to create like a painting that fully expresses who I am in the face of truth. You know, uh, would be nice, um, and would probably kind of—I don't know—it wouldn't negate the need for art, but it would right. definitely help me get there to the point where I could negate it. But, <laughs> um, but that—that's that's why it's a constant struggle. Right. It's 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 a love of the question, not really the answer, I guess. Hmm. Okay. And Bracken, can I ask you? It, it sounds to me like what you said is like when you create that you could be working on the same piece 
on a different day, out of a different mood, how does that, where does that end up taking you in the, in the culmination of that? I'm, I'm just fascinated by the concept that seeing it, the same work being shaped by your day. Um, yeah, I've, I view my work as a progression. Um, and we were, when we were talking about whether things can be completed, if you're ever actually satisfied, with me, when I'm done is when I feel like a piece about the work that I've been doing. Um, it's not necessarily, I mean, I could probably go back to it at some point, but I get to a place where I feel comfortable with it because I can always mm-hmm. add more. I can always take something away. Um, but as, as far as my moods go, it just, I mean, that creates um, more of a feeling and more of a depth to it because I can look at each piece that I've finished and pick out the pieces that come from my different days, from my different moods, from different things that were going on. I use different colors, different quotes, different images. It all kind of plays into that. Okay. And then, Steve, I want to ask you an answer, a question. I'm curious, oh, no. as long as we've known each other, if you actually have an answer to this. You, you make things pretty. You also, you that's also director of making things pretty. He is. Yes. He's, that's his job. <laughs> you also write music. Mm-hmm. What is the? Tell me when you're trying to express something. Tell me the difference between that, between doing something visually and doing something lyrically that's apparently more direct. Uh, for me, music is actual creation from me for the most part. Of um, I've like I've written with Dusty before, and so she's aware of this. I've never satisfied with, with where something gets, um, and. Most of the time for me writing music is the process of me spilling out as much as I can and then ripping away what really doesn't belong in that picture. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas most of the other work that I do, uh, Liz, can you put up the background for this week? Um, most of the other stuff that I do is digital. It's, it's for the screens here or something like that. And that to me is a conglomeration of other things. You take pieces and you put them together. Mm. Where for me, music is the opposite. You put as much out on the table as you can and you take away. And uh, that's more fun for me, because for me, other people can interact with it. Hmm. You know, I really enjoy when Dusty looks at things and goes, oh, that right there doesn't belong. Because I, I know that that's the process of pulling away is what's going right, to get me there. Right. So it feels more real. Hmm. Okay. All right. Great. Thank you all. Appreciate it. When I thought of the, the uh, question, one of the, one of the uh, movements or periods that, that struck me is uh, probably my favorite period of art, which is, is the abstract expression, or the beginning of the abstract expressionist movement, which 1930s to 1950s in New York City, and it was people like um, Jackson Pollock and Mark Rothko. And when I looked at that question, my mind immediately went to them for a couple of reasons. One is they were attempting through abstract art to, the term expressionism was, and it was applied to them rather than them taking the, creating the name, was the idea that they were trying to express emotion. They, they had moved away from a representational view of art and instead were trying to, 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 to picture, to somehow portray or to get people to feel things uh, deep within them. And, and Rothko, particularly, he was very self-conscious. One of the, one of the artists who, who wrote about what he was doing and spoke about what he was doing. And, and one of his quotes was, he said, there's no, there's no pa- painting worth anything that is not timeless and tragic. He, he attempted to capture something about, about humanity and about their struggles, their dreams, their hopes, their desires, their, their fears. And 
And he, he said, many people, when, when they weep before my paintings, he said, they are experiencing the same religious experience that I had when I created it. That moment of transcendence where there's a recognition of something, something, some level of pain, some level of hell, to use the phrase we've been using from that question, that was being, being drawn out. And so when I first looked at the question, I thought, well, I have the same issue that, that Joel does. Do, please don't throw universal at me. It's almost universally not true. But the, the, what I, when I thought about that statement, I thought, well, at least the, it may be an attempt to get out of hell, but I'm pretty convinced it's not necessarily going to be successful to uh, eliminate pain. For Mark Rothko is a case study in the, the failure of the expression of pain to be the solution. He, um, if you're not familiar with his, his life, at, at the height of his popularity, after being somewhat obscure, at the height of his popularity, um, he committed suicide. He, he understood pain. Uh, I, I, I look at his paintings, and for me, they draw out a, a, a depth of emotion. But the expression of pain is, is not an answer. It's just the expression of pain. And the other way I would look at that question is, is to say, I, I think that when we always create, no matter what it is, we create in an attempt to do one of two things. One is to express some level of pain or brokenness, and the other is to attempt to express some level of beauty or joy. I, I do think that's the other side. The Renaissance art was, was about trying to portray perfection, and whether or not it worked or not is a whole other issue, but I think both those things sort of play into it. But what struck me out of this was that even when we do create in order to express pain, it's, it's not enough. The expression of pain is not enough to get us out of hell, which is figurative, not literal. It's not enough. And, and the thought I want you to keep throughout the rest of this time is this, and then we'll, we'll keep coming back to this concept, is that pain, or the presence of pain, is, is an invitation to restoration in our lives. And to be relatively trite, that invitation can be rejected or it can be accepted. But pain is an invitation to restoration. And because we are a happy place, and last week I said loss is inevitable, the truth is, so is pain. Pain is inevitable. You remember the famous line of Clubber Lang in Rocky Three? What's my prediction for the fight? Pain. What's my prediction for our life? There will be pain. This uh, passage, we're going to look back at the passage we looked at last week in Romans chapter 8, is some of the wording is just, it's one of the reasons I love the Bible, honestly. It's not a fortune cookie. There's nothing wrong with fortune cookies. Please don't quote me going out and say, Bruce hates fortune cookies. I love fortune cookies. They're tasty. They come at the end of the meal and they have clever little phrases. However, I don't want to really live my life by them. The Bible's not a fortune cookie. It doesn't come up with clever little phrases. It's starkly realistic and attempts it to help us to wade into the actual issues in our life. And so with, this is one of these places. And I'm just going to read through the six or so verses that we looked at that last week. And just notice some of the wording that's used as it describes where we find hope, because the passage is about hope. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay, and brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the spirits, groan inwardly as we eagerly await our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. I mean, just that, just that far. I mean, we're groaning 
and we're experiencing bondage and decay. And honestly, if you're writing a book on hope, you don't start out right there. But Paul, Apostle Paul writing to us about where we find hope, felt it necessary to first say there's going to be pain. Pain, pain is, is, is sort of an inevitable experience in our lives. And all, all, all pain is, pain is simply a reflection that something's wrong. It, 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 it sen- it's a sensation that tells us that something is not what it should be. For example, when you stick your hand on the stove and it burns, that's because there's something wrong with sticking your hand on the stove. It, it, will, it will hurt you. And so pain, the pain receptors are telling you that something's wrong here. And in our, in our lives, in our souls, in our, 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 our minds, there are things that are wrong. And pain, the experience of emotional pain, of grief, of loss, is, is, the, is the sensation that something is not as it ought to be. And every one of us experiences that at some level, these, this inner level of pain, that something is wrong that has to be dealt with one way or another. And, and to be relatively simplistic, there's three ways that we can deal with pain. And just so you know, I'm going to say the third one's probably the best. The first is we just evade it. It, it was interesting. I, it, a lot of times when I'm doing, getting ready for something, I'll, in a key word, I'll look it up in, in the dictionary just to see, well, how is the word being used? Because the dictionary really is giving not so much etymology, which is the origins of the word, but connotation. How, how do we use this word? And as I looked up pain, as you got down, you know, the different definitions, at one point it, it said, typically, the typical response is evasion. And I thought, how true is that? The typical response to pain is evasion. I'm, I'm just going to escape it. You know, when you stick your hand in the stove, the typical response is evasion. And by the way, I'm going to encourage this. If you stick your hand in the stove, at that point, evasion is your response. It ought to be the response to, to that sort of a pain. It's not as helpful a response to our internal pain. Evasion. We're, we're really good at this, at, at finding a, a hundred different ways to evade the pain that we, that, we, that we feel. Smoke and mirrors, deflection, denial, anything we can to keep it away from us. And, and, and in fact, like one of Mark Rothko's most important influences was Friedrich Nietzsche in, in a book called The Birth of Tragedy, where he said, I mean, it was just like he no, pulled no punches. He said, look, the reason we need art is because we can't face life as it actually is. And so what art allows us to do is to avoid reality. And if we can't avoid reality, it's going to be terrifying. So sometimes we look at the pain within our lives and there's a sensation that something's wrong. And what we do with that is we just evade it. I I can evade it by watching a a football game. Not that there's anything wrong with that. I can evade it by denying it ever happened. I can evade it by blaming you. I can evade it by being a victim. I can evade the pain in my life a hundred different ways. The problem is the pain remains. And it forces me not to get better, but to cope with the pain that I feel inside. For example, if the pain within is causing anger that leaks out, I will trash my relationships with it because I'm denying it's even there. If the pain that's within comes from rejection or insecurity, I will also trash my relationships because I'm denying what's inside of me. Evasion popular methodology for dealing with pain, not the most helpful unless you're sticking your hand on the stove. A a second way that we we can deal with pain is by quick fixes, easy solutions. 
Now, this is also terribly popular for obvious reasons. If, if you have gone to the doctor and your ankle is bad, and he says to you, we got two solutions. One of them is going to require a major reconstructive surgery, six months in a cast, and then a long recovery after that. The other one is we'll put a Band-Aid on it. Okay, I'll take the Band-Aid. And we will look for reasons why the Band-Aid will be enough because we don't want to go through the mess of actually dealing with the problem. I want the simple solution. Again, if that actually will heal your ankle, awesome. In our life, quick solutions almost never work, but we are so enamored of them. We want them because at those moments when we're expressing pain, when we're feeling it, we just want it to go away. And if somebody tells us it can go away quickly, that would be great. I now radio surf because I just, I love what's, I just love listening to what people are saying in all ranges of fields. And so I radio surf now between the sports station and Christian stations and news stations. And some of the most fascinating things are the commercials. And there are commercials out now. One of them, some of you may have heard this. This is awesome. This promises us that in one minute, we can fix any problem we have with our children. I didn't know that. I thought it was going to take more than that. I thought it might take five or ten. Any problem. Your children will stop being obnoxious. Really? Problems with ADD? No problem. One minute. And then you hear the testimonies. They gave me the words to say, and it's like magic. My children immediately start obeying. Now, I hear it on the radio a lot. Have you all heard this? Okay, I hear it on the radio a lot. You know what this means? Somebody's buying it because they're able to keep paying for their radio spots. And so people are going, one minute? Give me that number. I'm writing this down. I found it. Quick solution. Now there's one for marriage. This is great. There's a guy who, who's on now telling us he can fix our marriage. And all we have to do is buy his keyword, if you're going to do advertising of quick fix keyword, his powerful audio tape. If I buy his powerful audio tape, my marriage, any marriage, no matter what I'm dealing with, will be fixed. I didn't know that either. I told my wife, and we bought the tape, and it's fixed. I'm kidding. I neither told my wife nor bought the tape. The quick fix. We just love the quick fix because we want it to be over. It's natural right? I mean, it's natural. We want a quick fix to the pain that we experience. And some of the pain, if we actually face it, is hard enough that if somebody tells us, I can fix this in a minute or in a week, bring it on, because I just want it to be gone. If you've been at Warehouse for more than 30 minutes, you would know that we're not real fans of quick fixes, because we don't think they work. They leave the problem intact and often destroy hope. You know how it is. When you've got a real issue in your life and somebody tells you they can quickly fix it and you buy into that notion and then it doesn't get fixed, hope starts to go away because you don't believe your problem can be fixed, that the pain can go away. There's a third pathway to the pain that we experience. That pathway is restoration. And I'm going to look at, read some of this passage to you again and we're going to explore a couple of key concepts in it. And again, Liz, I'm going to start in the, in the middle and read 22 through the end. And this is what it says. 
we know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we are saved. But hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what he already has? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. In the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groans that words cannot express. Here is the difficulty with pain as an invitation to restoration. And I I need to articulate this because I really don't want anybody going out with this idea. When I say pain is an invitation to restoration, I do not mean that pain is a gift that God gives us to teach us compassion. Really, pick another method. Or that, that pain is a way that God gets our attention. Might be true, often not terribly helpful. Some of those phrases we buy into too easily. What I mean that pain is an invitation to restoration is that pain, by definition, tells us that something is wrong. It tells us that something is not as it ought to be. The reason why my fingers hurt when I touch the flame is because they're not supposed to be on fire. (laughs) When we experience internal pain, it is a trigger. It's telling us something is not as it ought to be. But see, the question, the real question that hangs over this is, how am I going to figure out what it ought to be? I don't know. You see, that's the troubling thing. The, the, The whole point of restoration is that we're being brought to a place that where there isn't pain, where there's nothing wrong, and I don't have any experience with that. And, and I'm willing to say, you don't either. See, we don't, we've not actually seen that thing. We've not seen, we know that there's pain, we know there's something wrong. None of us have actually seen, felt, experienced the place where we are whole. Pain, loss, that sensation of something being off has been part and parcel of our lives. I don't mean the whole of our life, but it's been part and parcel of our lives, and we've never had the place of complete restoration, of being as it ought to be. And this is a problem. Because that that means is I don't actually know where it is. I don't know what it looks like. I only know that it's not there now. I have questions, not answers. I'm the opposite of Radio Shack. They've got answers. I don't. I've got questions. The questions are driven out of my pain. This is why we need something bigger than ourselves. You see, what this passage says is you wait. Wait in the midst of your pain for something else. And and I, I need to... By wait, it does not mean... Wait biblically is the sense of I'm waiting on someone. I'm engaged with someone. I'm engaged with God, and I'm expecting to hear from him. It is not a passive waiting. It's an engagement with someone who promises to invade my life. See, this, the end of that verse, verse 26 at the end of this, it just, things just keep hitting me out of it that what it really is telling me personally is that there is somebody bigger than myself. It's not just about when I don't know what to pray. It's when I don't know what the answers are. 
I don't know what the answers are to my pain. I know that there is a God who actually knows them. He has the picture. He has the blueprint. He knows who he created me to be. He knows what's wrong. He knows why I experience pain. And so he is the one I go to. The invitation to restoration is an invitation to engage with a God who can actually change the, not the symptom, but the causes of what is broken in our life. You see, what we often do, there's really, when, of every, you know, the three things I say you can deal with pain, there's like subsets of every one of them. And one of our, our subsets, the quick fix subsets, is spirituality. Okay, you're experiencing pain in your life. If I add some spiritual stuff, if I add a little bit of religion, right, then my life will be better because that makes sense because if, if there's God, then I should add some more religion to my life and then I'll be better. If you came to Warehouse looking for some spiritual stuff for a little bit of religion, I'm going to disappoint you because that's not what it offers. The Bible doesn't say, here, throw a little religion in your life. The Bible says there is actually, literally, a God. And a God who is beyond us, who is outside of us, who sees who we, act, who we are right now and who we're supposed to be. And without that, I do not have the possibility, the resources to understand even the pathway, because I don't know the end, but he does. You see, the compelling aspect of Christianity is not that it gives some fine-tuning from your life. It's to have a God who passionately cares about you, who knows what the pain is telling is wrong because he knows the picture. He's seen it. He knows who he made you to be. He knows what whole looks like in you. And so what Paul says is, and so in the midst of our groaning and the acknowledgement something's wrong, looking for the glorious freedom the freedom from the things that bind me and that haunt me, I wait on God. I engage the actual person of God and ask him to speak beyond the words that I have to lead me to a place of wholeness. Pain is an invitation to restoration. And it's an invitation to ask the question, God, would you now invade my life, show me what whole is, and take me there. I am utterly convinced that one of the reasons, one of the things that keeps us from experiencing wholeness is we keep believing in our own resources, we can pull it off. And this is one of those passages that seems to just be putting it straight before us and saying, look, you can try that. It's not enough. I'm not saying trying to fix it on your own is evil. It's not sufficient. Hope is found in what we've not yet experienced. I, I've not yet seen wholeness. I haven't. I mean, have I seen growth? Sure. Have I seen things change? Absolutely. Do I see more freedom and less bondage? Yes. Have I seen wholeness? No. But there's a God who has. Who, and this is key. See, what is it that allows us to wait on God to look to him for the cure for our pain and not take the very tempting route of evasion? Is the belief that, number one, he can do something about it. Number two, he actually cares enough to do something about it. And if either of those are not true, then give me evasion. 
how do I know? How do I know in the hardest moments that God actually cares about me? Well, I, I, I know certain things are true. I, I would say I have... It's really funny. It's funny to me. You may not think so. I have... The longer I've been a Christian, the fewer answers I have. But the stronger the answers I have are. I, when I was... Uh, please, I, I'm not meaning to be patronizing. I'm only speaking about myself. It'll sound like I'm being patronizing. I'm just letting you know ahead of time. When I was 25, I really thought I knew everything. I was pretty convinced. I'm sure you're better than I am, and you don't feel that way. When I was 25, I, I thought I had it. And the longer I've been a Christian, the more I've realized I don't have nearly as many answers as I thought I did. And there's certain ones that are absolutely rock solid. And one of the answers, it, it may be in the end the only real answer. I have is that there is a God who passionately loves me and who wants to see me free. How do, how do I know that? Well, I, I know that from the cross for one thing. I know that because there's a God who, who, who got in the game. He, he, he got skin into the game. And he, he came to earth after thousands of years of, of, of telling, of calling his shot, and he hung on a cross and he died for you and I. So he's got skin in the game. I mean, that, that goes a long way to somebody takes a bullet for me, I'm pretty convinced that they, that they care about me. And then I look at the clues throughout the world of the presence of God. And then I, I feel him speak into moments in my life so powerfully and so poignantly. And I have those moments. And some of them, for me, honestly, are staring at art. It, it may not be the same for you, but when I look at some of Mark Rothko's paintings, it's like I, I know there's something bigger than me and something beyond me. And so for me, one of the answers that is rock solid, I believe there's a God who's out there who actually cares for me, that isn't trying to make me a little better, but knows the pathway for restoration of my soul and is absolutely committed to getting me there. And so at the end of the day, if you walked in today looking for a little religion, maybe some fear or some guilt or a package of spiritual resources, I'm not going to give them to you. I, I offer you the only answer I really know about the change and the restoration of your soul and the film of that empty place, which is there's a God who, who can make you into everything that you long to be, who can take the pain and articulate the cause and bring restoration to it, and he's calling you to himself. And in that space is the thing you've actually been looking for through the evasion through the distraction, through the expression. And, and he, he invites you into that today. It's accessible for you by putting your faith in Jesus and asking him into your life. And I'd also say for, for each one of us, for me, this, for me this whole week as I've walked through this passage has been a reminder that I want to stay very, very simple about what I believe and what I give myself fully into. And I want to give myself more fully into my engagement with my relationship with God through reading the Bible, through praying, through conversation, through writing, which is a way that I express such that I'm calling upon him to reach into the places where there's actually pain and brokenness and asking him to both show me the picture of what it's supposed to look like restored and to lead me down that path. My prayer is that as we walk into this time of worship, this will be a time of restoration for every one of us moments of God engaging you and of showing you hope that you don't have to evade. God can give you hope of restoration.
He has plans for your soul, and he can bring them to pass. Let's pray. Lord, would you lead us in this time? We want to be alive to you. Every, you know, I think we, we feel it. Every expression, the creativity when we're longing, when we're searching, it, it's, it's, it's looking for something. I pray for each one of us that you would show up in the midst of this time and it would be a moment, a period of restoration. Of us seeing what's cracked and calling upon you to make it right and make it whole again. We look for, we expect, we wait upon you in the midst of this time. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. As we receive the offering, let this be a picture to you. We, we put it into the middle of our service before our time of worship as a way to remind ourselves that there is somebody far bigger and that our life is lived in response to somebody far bigger who's waited into our life. And so when we give, we give out a portion. Uh, as we can see the whole of what we've been giving, we give out a portion back. It reminds us that God is the one who invades heavily into our lives. And as he makes us alive, we're able to become more free and to live out of that.